When people talk about work-life balance, I hate that topic because I think to do really well in an area, your life has to be out of balance. It's practically impossible to stay in balance. That was Arshad Bal. This is Marnie Salop. Thanks for tuning into my podcast, Marnie on the Move. Each week, I will be inviting interesting, innovative movers and shakers to join me on the show and share their story. You will discover and hear from thought leaders, experts, influencers, and entrepreneurs from the worlds of wellness, sports, beauty, fitness, fashion, and more. Marnie on the Move will feature an eclectic mix of people I know, work with, and think are generally doing cool things. On each episode, I sync up with my guests about life, career, and training, and showcase their expertise and story. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Marnie on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Marnie Salop. Thanks for tuning in. Lots going on over here at MOTM HQ. Thanks so much for coming to our live to headset panel at Chelsea Pierce Fitness in Brooklyn and Chelsea this week. It was so great to meet everyone and also get some new listeners. So thanks again for coming and of course for posting about the events on Instagram and Facebook and tagging all of our awesome partners at Wetterspoon, Four Sigmatic, Core, White Claw and Navitas and of course Chelsea Pierce. I really appreciate all the social love. We still have one more event as part of our well-intentioned live to headset Marnie on the Move Summit on Wednesday, January 23rd at WeWork at 507th Avenue at 38th Street with the famous Lucy Danziger of Hinted and Lara Yurdolan, founder of Pretty Connected. This is a new series we're launching presented by Talent House, showcasing creative entrepreneurs, head over to our website, marnieonthemove.com, click on the invite on our events page and RSVP. Okay, on to today's episode. Arshad Bal is the founder and CEO of Amrita Foods, the protein and energy bars that fuel my training and everyday life. His path to entrepreneurship was organic, literally and figuratively, and also incredibly inspiring. He spent the first part of his career working in the corporate consulting world, but when his son was diagnosed with autism and severe gastrointestinal issues at the age of two, Arshad and his wife's life was changed forever. They did a ton of research and immediately started their son on an aggressive gluten-free and dairy-free nutrition program. The nutritional changes helped heal his gastrointestinal issues, which allowed for better absorption of nutrition, which in turn made it easier for him to focus on other necessary therapies. Within three years, their son was in a mainstream classroom and was doing well both academically and socially. This was in 2006, at a time when these types of healing remedies and food as medicine were unheard of in the mainstream world. After his son's nutritional-based autism and gastrointestinal recovery, Arshad became convinced that plant-based nutrition was the right approach for managing inflammation. The significance of reducing one's allergy load to help the body recover from daily stresses became apparent. Arshad became dedicated to developing snacks free of these damaging ingredients like gluten, dairy, nuts, soy, oils, preservatives, and chemicals containing non-organic foods. In 2012, Amrita was officially launched. What began as a few pop-ups starting at farmer's markets locally got picked up by Whole Foods and today is in over a thousand doors nationwide. I discovered the bars years ago through my triathlon friends and then reconnected with Arshad at Fancy Food, an industry trade show. He is an incredibly savvy founder and entrepreneur with a seriously awesome product. 
The protein and energy bars are delicious and packed with superfoods and healthy ingredients. As I mentioned, they are dairy-free, gluten-free, vegan, and the ingredients are amazing, of course, including everything from quinoa, chia seeds, dates, coconut oil, sea salt, maple syrup, dried cranberries and blueberries, you name it. On today's episode, Arshad and I talk about where his entrepreneurial journey began, food as medicine, and how it helped his son, healthy foods for fueling athletes and life, And he shares some great career and business insight and wisdom on building a CPG brand, direct-to-consumer sales, influencer marketing, and more. I hope you enjoy today's episode. If you like what you hear, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Also, follow Marnie on the Move on Instagram or Facebook at Marnie on the Move and sign up for our newsletter on our website, MarnieOnTheMove.com, to be the first to know about our upcoming events, partner deals, and giveaways. You can also learn more about today's guest at AmritaHealthFoods.com and Amrita Bars on social media. I hope you enjoy. Before I get started with our episode, I wanted to tell you about one of our fueling partners, Renee Fries. Today's episode is fueled by Renee Fries Hair Care Products, the all-new Scandinavian-inspired cloudberry-infused line from world-renowned hairstylist Renee Fries. Renee was recently a guest on the show and brought me some products to try. I was immediately hooked after using the products. They really, truly are amazing. I tried the thickening cleanser and conditioner and the styling cream. These products have been game changers for my hair. As you know, I'm training and exercising almost every day, swimming a few times a week. The cleansers and conditioners are super light, nourishing, simple, and they smell great. Of course, they are paraben-free, not tested on animals, and full of great natural ingredients, including extracts from cloudberry, rhodiola, and birch. Head over to his website at reneefries.com or shop his Amazon store at amazon.com slash Okay, now on to the episode. Where did the idea for Amrita begin? So there's, there's two parts to okay. this whole journey. One is that I wanted to be an entrepreneur for a very long time, but I had grown up in India where being an entrepreneur when I was growing up as a kid was not really a path. And it was mostly either you went into the sciences, or you went into engineering, so kind of closely related. And so that's what I did. I came here to this country when I was 18, went through college, master's, couple master's, MBA, did all the, the corporate track, right? Was was pretty solid with that. I got to a point in the corporate where I realized that the people in front of me, five, six years ahead of me, were not people that I looked up to or I didn't want to have their lives. Let's put it that way. So even though I was doing well, I wanted to get off that escalator as quickly as I could when I realized where I was headed. And so then I wanted to be an entrepreneur. This is you're talking 2012-ish or 2010-ish. Around that time, my son was also going through a journey with autism. And so I was deeply involved in helping him recover and using food as an enabler to help him recover. And I felt that food is such a common thing for everybody. And we all want to have clean nutrition as much as we can afford it. So I basically took what I was doing for my son at that time. And really the business was basically to help him develop social skills. So kids with autism have really bad social skills. So we basically took these bars that we were making with him for him to a farmer's market. And then it just completely by coincidence, Whole Foods came to the farmer's market. They really liked what we're doing and asked for us to bring it into Whole Foods. And we had like no idea about 
how to take it to retail or anything like that. So that all of a sudden opened up the entrepreneurship piece where, oh, wow, now we got a store, a major store wanting to carry it. And I was at an influx in my career where I could jump off and do this. And so that's kind of like how it started at that time. I tell people I'm not a natural born entrepreneur. I'm more of a corporate person. But if you want to do this, you have to just take a jump and do it. What were you doing in corporate before? So I was in marketing strategy, a little bit of finance. I was in a leadership development program at IBM, which basically made you go through all the rotations with the goal of at some time they get a pool of talent and then they push them up the ladder. I love marketing. I love branding. So that's what I get excited about. You have a great logo. Did you design the logo? So I worked on a really interesting project for IBM where... IBM's logo is like the third most well-recognized logo in the world. And the logo was getting degraded over time because it basically IBM is in about 100 countries and each country was representing the logo differently. So I actually worked for a corporate initiative to figure out how to give instructions to the countries on how they can maintain the value of the logo. So that's when I really understood the value of logo. And so that was actually my first project when I started the company is to really work on the logo. And I, I think I got lucky that logo I created came out really well and we get a lot of compliments for it. So branding has always been important. Your son's autism was really the catalyst for you beginning this company. Is your son still on the spectrum? Well, he's now been off the autism, you know, there's a checklist. The, the spectrum? Yeah, the spectrum. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he's off the spectrum. He's off the spectrum. So were you able to help him with food and nutrition? Yeah. So when he was diagnosed at about the age of two and a half, um, he had pretty bad gastrointestinal problems. And what we read and what we were told by a pediatrician was that 80% of kids on the autism spectrum, especially boys, have GI problems. So there's definitely a connection between that. The problem is that it's pretty fuzzy and there are many ways you can help a child with autism. Autism is a neurological disease. But basically what we did is we said if he reduced inflammation in his body, then the neurons can heal. And so... The dots were, were kind of fuzzy connecting the pieces, but we basically put him on a low inflammation diet. So no gluten, no dairy, no soy, no eggs, mostly fruits, vegetables, and healthy grains, things like brown rice, you just home-cooked food. And probably within six, seven months, we started seeing changes. That's amazing. Yeah. So he's a kid who actually was so bad with his GI that, that they did, it's a special uh, pill that you put inside your stomach and you can take pictures every couple seconds mm-hmm. of that pill basically transporting itself through your entire intestine. And they saw massive lesions. So they actually have a record of him before the low inflammation died. And then after the low inflammation died, they did a similar thing. Massive healing happened in between. So we knew that the diet was working. Mm-hmm. And then slowly, slowly things started coming out, like speech started coming out, eye contact started getting better. But it was still a long process. I mean, it's like one of those things in entrepreneurship. You've just got to keep doing it. Yeah, you have to stick with your mission. Just got to stick with it. So probably a year and a half process for him to start turning the corner. But still, he was in a specialized classroom that was, uh, it's called integrated classroom. So there's a bunch of kids on the spectrum and a bunch of regular neurotypical kids. So he was there till about fourth, fifth grade. So still about nine years old. Was this the first time that you had ever heard of anything like this? When was it, 2002? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I yeah, mean, so that was like now. right yeah. when at the beginning of, I think, it was even prior to when 
people started coming out with like all the gluten-free diets. Exactly. And, but I mean, it was a time when you would say that you take your kid to the doctor or even you go to the doctor and say that you don't feel well and they send you home with a pill and nobody even thought to think maybe they should look at what they're eating and your diet. And especially if such a young kid, I mean, yep. they're not really eating anything. So Right. So we were given actually three choices. One was you can take steroids and heal the gut, but then steroids at a really young age have pretty significant impact later on in life. The second one was was some other form of medication, which would pretty much last the whole life. And then the third one was this low inflammation diet. So we actually took the prescription for the steroid, but just never used it. We had it because we felt like if he doesn't get better, we can try the steroid. I mean, there's been countless studies of diet helping if you just stick with it. It's not easy especially with kids they get very used to eating French fries. And if you read up on the autism spectrum, also probably kids in general, it's called the brown diet, which is French fries, nuggets, pizza, some of those because of the fat, the salt, all the high content of addictive foods. And and they're very habit-forming kids anyway. So it was really difficult to get him off those things to have a more of a clean diet. Now, I think more and more doctors are talking about Oh yeah, definitely now, but... And so you were so immersed in helping your son as a family, building back his nutrition and introducing these foods to him. I mean, that's pretty much your bars now. We're pretty much inspired by his diet. Yeah. And actually what we did is we made it for him and it was more from a sensory perspective. So basically kids on the spectrum have really bad sensory problems in general. So one of the things we were doing was to knead dough. The kneading the impact of kneading is very sensory and the, and the pushback on the hands, mm-hmm. uh, Play-Doh or, or just dough. And so one day I was making the bars for myself and I felt like, hey, it's the same thing. Bars are dates and dried fruits and it's kind of like kneading it. And so I just asked him to help me and he loved it. And then we just started playing with it. I asked him what kind of fruits he wanted to put in it. And the whole goal was if he liked it, he'd eat it. And that's exactly what happened. So we basically started with a colander with dates and dried fruits and just instead of using a cuisine art, we just basically mashed it with our hand. Then we cut it up into fun shapes and that was basically his bar. And it became a big part of his diet and was such a concentrated amount of calories and nutrients. So he literally got a lot of his meals from just eating various types of bars that he made. So there's a sense of he felt good about it. Right. We felt good about it. So that was sort of the genesis of, of the bar. It really was from a weird point of view where we were not thinking about making bars, but it was more from a sensory perspective. But you were thinking about being an entrepreneur. Sure, sure. Yeah. Right. I yeah. mean, so, and I think not to deviate from the subject, because I think it's important. I know that a lot of my listeners are parents mm. and I also know they're entrepreneurs. So mm-hmm. I think it's interesting to hear your story on how you started your company, particularly because the bars are really good, but also there's a bigger mission And it was organic for you. I mean, it was just, you were always on track to be an entrepreneur, but your corporate days were really the building blocks and foundation for you to launch your company. Right, right. Yeah. Then what was next for you? So after Whole Foods came to the farmer's market, I mean, that was a time when Whole Foods was also a big part of the discovery movement of all these small local brands. Yeah, that was around 2011, 12, I think. Whole Foods had a mission for many years and they sort of still do to a certain extent where they want to showcase local brands. So they brought us into one or two stores and that was enough. We really were just learning. I mean, literally we were making the bars by hand, slapping labels on, 
and taking them there. And then once a couple hundred of them sold out, we went back and we did the same thing over and over. That was the only store we were in. So we had two stores, then we got seven, and then we got all of them in the city. And the city's volume was amazing compared to what Westchester, Whole Foods and all that were. So that kept us busy for six, eight months. And then we started talking to other smaller stores, built a website. So it's kind of like gradual, but For many years, we were playing the retail game of Whole Foods, Sprouts, Wegmans, all those kinds of stores. And was that helpful to building your brand from both a growth strategy and also from a visibility level? Yeah. So when I started at that time, the direct-to-consumer business was still relatively new. And so most people who were building brands were still doing it through the traditional retail channel. And I think this, so now I'm more direct-to-consumer, less in retail And I think brand building is a lot easier when you can own the conversation with your consumer. It's a little bit harder when you have to go through a distributor to get to the store, to get to the consumer. So that's kind of like how... And you've done that. And we've done that, right? But it's hard because there are so many brands that can come in with, especially if they're funded, come in with money and put the product on sale, put a lot of demos that you as a bootstrap brand may not be able to do. So you might have a great product that may not be able to have the velocity in a store because there's another brand that came in with venture funding and could just move a whole lot faster. When you say move a whole lot faster, you mean because the packaging is great and the products are easily produced and so they can also buy better real estate, exactly. right? In Whole Foods or Wegmans. Yep. So they're they're in a more optimal position. Absolutely. Yeah. So this is the reason why when you go to the typical shelves of most major supermarkets, you don't see a lot of diversity in products. I mean, now you do, and I think the last three or four years, natural foods has really exploded. But before that, it used to be controlled by a couple of big brands like General Mills or Coke in the, in the areas of drinks. But now you've seen a lot of the small brands sort of break through that. So when I started... Yeah, Whole Foods gave you the chance, but it was typically the only major vendor that gave you the chance besides, say, a lifetime market here or Westerly or somebody like that, right? So you were really dependent on a very small group of stores to really break through. The bars are a very crowded category, so it's incredibly difficult one to get a lot of momentum compared to, say, the Cliff, the Kind, the bigger brands. So even though we made a great product, I think it was a real struggle for many years to make money. Right. right? So, so it was, it was <laughs> my a, favorite topic. Right. It was like this constant thing where yeah. hey, I'm selling so much. Why am I not making any money? And you're like spending all your time making the bar. Right. Yeah. And especially when you come from corporate where you work your ass off to get to a certain point up the ladder, right? To finally make the money. And then you jump off to do something where you're not making money. It's one of those things when you're in corporate, in the corporate world, not that I've ever been in any corporate world, Mm. except when I visit my clients, it's like you work so hard to reach some goal that you don't really ever get to, if you're just on that corporate track, you never own the company, right? But then when you take the risk and you get on the track where you want to own the company and you work so hard, you don't make the money. So yeah. it's like this trade-off. Like, what do you want? Definitely, definitely. Yeah. And I think it took me a couple of years to realize that you need to own the conversation when you're an entrepreneur, yes. right? And so that was sort of the genesis. And this happened about a year and a half ago for me when I realized I was really producing a great product. I was selling a lot, but I was not making money. So I wanted to keep doing what I'm doing. And the only way I could do that was to shift channels and go to direct-to-consumer e-commerce where I could control the narrative with people. And I think it's also, as an entrepreneur, you just got to realize that it takes years. 
in this last five, six years, have we seen this influx of capital that's making the entrepreneurs fly like way faster than it used to happen in the past. Right. 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 So, so in the past, it like took, all those incubator programs. Right. Right. It took people solid six, 10 years to work really, really, really hard to make a living. And then they, they built a proper business that had some good foundations some repeat customers and all that. Now, I think they're just buying fans through influencers, buying their way through to get to a certain velocity, but it's not really a lot of, if you look into the business, the numbers mm-hmm. are not there as yeah. a true business. So it's not authentic. Yeah. yeah. It's just an optics thing. Yeah. And there's no real conversion in the numbers. Yeah. And I think the trick you, is finding the balance. Right. And I think if you ask those entrepreneurs, they'll say, hey, I've been given some money and I've been asked to grow fast because whoever gave it to them, the angel investors, whoever gave it to them has expectations of them growing fast. So so they may not be doing anything wrong based on where their direction is coming from. But I think as an entrepreneur, for me, it was really important to stay bootstrapped because I put in a lot of my personal money in it and to not look for venture funding until I got to a point where I felt like the business was solid and I needed the extra bit just to take it to the next level. So you've invested all of your time and money into your company and yep. that's not your strategy. You're growing it to a place where it's your brand still. Yeah, I think there's a couple models in the entrepreneurship world. One is grow fast, exit to somebody else, right? <laughs> My problem is I feel like I really love what I'm doing and I may, I don't want to hand it off to somebody else. So, but maybe, you know, at some stage I'll get tired of it, but I'm really interested in doing what I'm doing. So to grow a little bit slower and to grow profitably is something that I take a lot of pride in. And I feel like, hey, that's the model that was followed for hundreds of years by merchants and they all did well. And I feel that the main difference now is we've got tools that help us be a lot more efficient than 15, 20 years ago, when maybe even a decade ago, I would have to go to all the stores physically to get my product in the hands of people. Now, I could be sitting, so last year I was on a sabbatical in London and I ran my entire business. Also a major perk of having your own company. Exactly, right? So I made my entire company go remote, shut my office down, moved to London. And it was like a little bit of an experiment for me. Like, can I do this? And I was really trying to understand the minimal lifestyle and all that. And it's totally doable. So running a product-based company maybe a decade ago would not have been possible for me to do it sitting in a different continent. So I think there's lots of things that are awesome now that as entrepreneurs we can leverage. So I think we're like sort of in the best of both worlds, right? We can leverage all these tools, but we still can be bootstrapped and grow the company at a pace that makes sense to us. There really are no great bars on the market besides Amrita, of course. Every time I start to like one, they change the formula. Amrita has always been consistent. Yeah, and I was telling you this, I think it's a very common problem in the bar market that these companies grow to a certain volume and then they get bought out. And typically the, you literally start seeing the customer complaints pop up on Amazon or on their website. Oh my God, the product doesn't taste the same anymore. If you go through all the major companies that have been bought out, you'll see this continuous repetition in the problem. And it's because the market and the bar side is so competitive that the only way you can make money is by cheapening the ingredients. And I think that's where we don't take shortcuts. And dates cost about $2, $2.50 a pound. Oats are about 40 cents a pound, so about five times more expensive the dates. And so our bars, for what they give, are a pretty good deal in terms of the price. But we regularly will hear from people that, oh, it's not as cheap as a oat-based bar. And our 
response typically is that is designed for low inflammation. It's designed so you can digest it better. It's harder to digest an oat-based product when you're doing tempo on, on a bike ride. Right. Right. And so, so that's why we designed it for that occasion. I think we are going to be working a lot harder to get into distribution in places where people will value that difference. So for us, it's not the traditional grocery store where maybe somebody's looking for the cheapest bar, but maybe it's the athletic store or the triathlete who's willing to pay $1,000 to go to Lake Placid and has really put a lot of effort into training for that race and wants to have the best nutrition, right? So it's about figuring out who the customer is that really cares about what you're doing and serving them. And so... Because how many doors are you in now? A thousand doors around the country, yeah. And then you do a lot of direct-to-consumer? Exactly, yeah. About 50% of a business now is direct-to-consumer and 50% is retail. Yeah, and a goal is to probably go like a 60-40 model okay. this year. Yeah, so. You were just on sabbatical for the mm. year in London and you had shared some really interesting lessons about what you learned from the culture of mm-hmm. being abroad and coming back here and what you're applying to your business. So maybe you could sure. share a little bit about that. Yeah, so actually I'll preface this by saying like before I went to London, I had listened to the documentary The Minimalist I encourage people just, I think it's on Netflix and you can probably get versions of it for free. It's an amazing documentary that helps you live a more intentional life. It's not about living with less. It's about just being more intentional about what you do with your life and your time. And I say more time more than money because time is the the scarce resource for most of us. That documentary really sort of put me on the path to basically opening up every part of my life and saying, how much money do I really need? How big a space do I really need to live in? Do I really need four bikes? Can I just get that one bike that's the gravel no, bike? No, you need four bikes. <laughs> you, need, right. you need four. And, and again, there's nothing wrong if you really love a sport to have a lot of options there. What minimalism taught me was to get really focused on what you love and just go deep into that. When this opportunity came up to go to London, my wife got a gig there. I figured I wanted to really take advantage of it because I really wanted to live with less, right? And, and so in London, we we could only afford an apartment that was 800 square feet, and it was ridiculously expensive, even at that small size. And we didn't have a car. I just had one of my bikes there, and we just did with a whole lot less. And we were totally fine, and we were actually happier. So that experiment of a year with just living a minimal lifestyle was just fantastic. That was I think for me, that experiment at the end of the year, especially coming back to New York, back to our bigger house, was really interesting because it made me look at everything and say, do I really need this extra piece of something or am I using my time and my money in the best way possible? How did it help you shape and shift your focus and vision for your business? Yeah, so I was very curious about people's health in Europe because I think in general, I feel that Europeans are healthier than Americans. They go to the gym less, they work less, they typically earn less. So how are they more happy and typically in better shape? So I literally every country I traveled to, I talked to people and asked them those questions. I'm sure they, they thought it was pretty annoying, but I was in the Nordics and everybody was on these non-racing bikes, the typical stand upright straight, and they were riding the bikes all over the place and they had these baskets that they were carrying the groceries in. And one of the things I very quickly realized was that people moved a lot more 
And I think that was one of my big takeaways is, is this constant movement that people just had as part of their life. I also realized that there was a lot of culture that people kept up with. So if it was culture for people to spend time taking the month of August off, they just did it. Whether they had a big corporate job or not, it was just the month of August was off for everybody and people chilled out. Especially in London, anytime the sun came out, everybody stopped working and went out. Those were things that I thought was really strange coming from New York, where everybody was always working. And I think in Europe, people just stop working and nothing breaks, essentially. That was interesting, and I brought that back to my business. I also think that there is a lot more attention to people talking to other people. For example, I love coffee. And typically in America, it's a caffeine exercise. You're going in there because you are drowsy and you want to get caffeinated. Which is in Europe, it's a place where you go to meet your buddy for lunch and sip on an espresso for an hour to two hours, yeah. right? And so yeah. it was a completely different thing. And there were many places where they were very annoyed that I wanted to take an espresso to go. Right. <laughs> because it's like, <laughs> no, you, you sit down here and you enjoy it or you read a newspaper or something. So I think that part was very good for me to really work hard on being in the moment, enjoying something for what it's worth, the flavor, the situation, and then just bring that back. Like, I think there's, there's nothing wrong in having a two hour lunch break, you know, and the world's not going to come to an end if you don't answer your emails for two hours during lunch. In your mind, it was a huge risk or challenge for you to sort of say, I'm going to go to Europe and work remotely for the year. And now you've come back and you have a whole new sort of strategy around how you're doing business. Sure. So basically I shut my office down. I had three people working full-time for me. I gave them all options of going remote. Uh, Two of them decided it wasn't what they were comfortable with. One person went remote. And I actually shrunk my team by just being more efficient with the processes. And I worked New York hours, which actually in London worked pretty well. So I used to take my kids to school in the morning, uh, which was an amazing thing that I'd never done before. Walk my kids for a mile. We walked on this canal and we went to school. And so, and I walked. And how old are your kids? I have a six, a 12, and a 14. Got it. And they went to public school in London and said walk, and then I'd take a typical jog back or something. And so I worked New York hours. So my work didn't typically start till probably one o'clock in the afternoon or two o'clock. I loved when I used to go to Paris (laughs) for a week. Yeah. I used to go to Paris a lot for the week and I would stay out all night and then sleep in the morning and start work at 12 o'clock. It was the perfect. It's totally the perfect. perfect, It it really took being an entrepreneur to a whole other level, being an entrepreneur in Paris. And I could always make the excuse, listen, it's midnight here. I got to cut it, you know. Yeah, I'm I'm walking (laughs) into a bar. And some people felt really bad about it. Like, you know, so, so I was able to work a lot lot less because of the time deadline. And I forced myself not to start work early because there were times when I felt like, oh, I've got the morning, let me work. So I really compressed my schedule. It was just an exercise to see whether I could do it. And and it completely worked. I mean, I think, you know, when you have less time, you make things work within that, that time frame. Yeah. I encourage a lot of people to put more processes in place in their business and to outsource as much as they can. So, yeah have a bunch of VAs helping me and I, you know, running my business and it's, it's great. You can really do it. How many products do you have now? So we've got protein bars, seven flavors. We've got five flavors of superfood bars and then seven flavors of bites, which are the minis. 
And you are introducing these along with your focus on your direct-to-consumer outreach. I think we're at a really pivotal point in consumer packaged goods, where if you look at companies like Everlane, that is 100%, I think they're about 100 million plus business, fully direct-to-consumer. And there's many, many, many examples like that of eight-figure businesses that are direct-to-consumer. First of all, you can probably get two times the amount of profit in a direct-to-consumer. It doesn't mean that you get to keep the profit because it costs a lot to acquire customers, right? So the store is doing the acquisition for you. I really think where the difference in direct-to-consumer is versus the retail is you own the conversation with the consumer. So if you're building a platform, it's really, really beneficial to be direct-to-consumer because it allows me to take that consumer that I have acquired and sell them more product over time. So for me, I'm building a platform on plant-based snacks. So the person who loves my protein bars would probably also want to have a gluten-free, savory option, like say roasted pumpkin seeds somewhere down the line. And so for me to convince Whole Foods to carry the pumpkin seeds might be a difficult task because maybe they already have three other people selling them pumpkin seeds. But for me to convince the person who's already bought my product online might be an easier process. So I think that's a place where it's very, very beneficial because you own the conversation. Plus, I just think nowadays it's a lot more efficient, the direct-to-consumer route, because like I said, I have a very small team of people, one full-time person, <laughs> four virtual assistants. I'm running a seven-figure business right now so and taking a year sabbatical. So I think it's very doable and to really have something authentic and you can do it. Who are some of your consumers? Like what type of people are using your product? Yeah, and I think we were talking about this, about who you think your consumer is. Oh, yeah. Sometimes it's not your consumer. Yes. And I, for the longest time, thought probably like most other people in CPG think that it's the millennial mom who's your consumer, right? That that person is like put on a pedestal. So when I started doing more research and started looking through all my sales data, I found that it really varied. I had a lot of people in the older demographic who kind of like what you said, are people who are opening their eyes to health and wellness. They're getting older, they have less time and they, they really want to eat better now, right? So a big group of people in that space. I have a lot of athletes. Yeah. Definitely a big group of people there. And then I've got a lot of people with food allergies, right? Mom who's trying to get some snacks into her kid's lunch pack because the school has a nut-free policy. So our stuff doesn't have nuts in it. So it works really well in that case. It's a really varied demographics. And sometimes it's difficult when we're doing Facebook ads or something like that to figure out your ad set because it, it is quite spread out. Right. That's like a that. good example. Cause anytime <laughs> yeah. I look at Facebook, I'm like, I don't know, like, yeah. is this the consumer I want or yeah. the consumer that I have yeah. or the consumer that I think I have? Sure. And, and I think the other thing I would tell people, and I've sort of learned this the hard way is there is money in every one of these areas, right? right. So it's not that you should not go out and take your product and sort of force fit it into a consumer that you think has money. You should have an authentic discussion, right? For me, the older people like my product, but I also know that they're very conscious of sugar. So I have an honest discussion with them and say that we don't add sugar, it's clean nutrition, and that discussion helps them open up and have a product where typically they probably wouldn't have something with that much natural sugar in it. So it's about not being afraid to have those conversations. Right, and you were saying you might be introducing something that's lower in sugar down the road. Right, so my dad's diabetic, and I think he has asked me a few times to bring out a bar that has just lower amounts of sugar and higher amounts of fiber. And so it's actually something that is not difficult to do, but it's one of those things that I typically wouldn't do it for myself. 
<laughs> so, so now I have to go back to the drawing board and say. And this kind of started with what you would do for yourself because yeah. you're a cyclist. Yeah, most athletes probably need more carbs than non-athletes do. Right? And definitely not that much fiber when you're right. out on the bike. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah. I mean, I love that you have the bites as pretty much the same thing as the bar, but yep. it's bite. I think this is a great alternative for athletes to fuel on yep. the bike. But you also had a great idea about food and fueling with food. I mean, you obviously can't do that during a race, yep. but you had mentioned that out on long rides that you'll sometimes bring avocado yep. or something with salt. Yeah. For me in general, and I think it's different for everybody's body is different. I cramp up after a three hour, four hour ride. I just start getting cramps, whether it's the winter or the summer. And I think for me, my electrolytes probably just run low. So I don't take salt tabs. Probably salt tabs will help. Yeah, they're great. So what I do is I just take sweet potatoes with lots of salt in it. So That's smart. So that's all I do. I just take that's, a sweet potato. You take bake. it with you. Yeah, I just throw it in my Put back in your, pocket. In your yeah. back pocket. Yeah. <laughs> Not even Do you have a bento box on the on the mountain bike? Yeah, I don't have a bento box. You don't. But, but a bento box I think is a better idea because Sometimes when taking out of the back pocket, stuff falls out. And also, so. like, if you're riding for a long time, the sun is, yeah. like, beating down. When did you start cycling? Like, when did that begin oh, for you? It's been a passion since I was, like, 18 or 19, riding hard, racing and all that. So, Do you know how many races you've done in the course of your life? When I first started, we had a lot more races. Now I think the amount of races available in general has dropped. Have you always been in New York? I've always been in the U.S., in the so US. different states okay. in, the, in the U.S. There were times when I was doing 40 races a year, so a season. 40, All mountain 50. bike or road? Road, road? road, mostly road. Yeah, and mountain bike is more recent. The mountain bike started after I had a few bad crashes on the road and in races, and I realized that, all right. Well, it was more my wife telling me, you know. Yeah, I, I had a feeling that was <laughs> the next sentence. <laughs> just, you need to either hang up the bike or find a different sport. And, and yeah. I said, okay, fine. If I if I crash in mountain biking, it's completely my fault, not somebody else's. And right. You know, so you'll take accountability. For yeah. That. Yeah. And I can always you know, crawl, chuck, chuck it up on the deer that hit me or some something. Yeah. Else. <laughs> Good to know. Right. Yeah. So and now you said you're going to start racing again. Now yeah. that your kids are older. Yeah. So basically, one of the things is being an entrepreneur. Sometimes you forget the few things that were part of your balanced life before you became an entrepreneur. Yes. So my life is very out of balance. So like when people talk about work-life balance, I, I hate that topic because I think to do really well in an area, your life has to be out of balance. It's practically impossible to stay in balance and grow an area really well. So now I'm trying to bring back a few things that I love. Right? right. So my life will still be out of balance because I love doing what I'm doing and I'm, I'm going to do more of that. Right. But I also feel I want to have a few things back in my life that I just really, really enjoy doing. And cycling is one of those things. Like traveling is one of those things for me. Yeah. Do you travel with your bikes too? You said you brought one of your bikes to London. <laughs> I brought one. Did you buy a new bike when you got there? No, but I rented. London has these amazing folding bikes. And they actually ride really, really well. So it's called a Brompton. It's a fantastic bike. If you ever go to London, rent it. Oh, you rent it like city bike? Yeah, it's like a city bike, but it's a folding bike. So it folds into something really small and you can take it in because London has horrible bike theft problem, probably like New York, like the city here. So I used to just basically rent the Brompton whenever I wanted to travel anywhere in London mm -hmm. and just ride. And then you can just fold it, take it into the cafe or any place like that or that's cool on the bus yeah yeah I think that someone I also have a lot I mean I don't actually I don't have a lot of bikes I have a lot of windsurfing equipment that yeah. is currently in storage so because I'm not windsurfing anymore but I refuse to get rid of it but I have two bikes 
Yes. See, that's oh, but not they're, a lot. That are in my apartment. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's a thing when you're an athlete. I think that's like the whole part of being an athlete. Sure. Yeah. But so collecting I have gadgets. some, yeah, collecting gadgets like this. I actually, one of my friends wanted to give me his folding bike and I was like, I don't know if I can take in any more bikes. <laughs> yeah. I would, I would recommend like if you ever get a chance yeah. to ride a Brompton, it's, it's fantastic. It's yeah, yeah. It's just really all of a sudden, like I was locking, I was buying these really expensive locks in London and then somebody stole my front wheel, even though I had a really, really oh expensive lock. And this was like within five minutes of me going into a building. And that's when I said, oh, forget it. I can't outsmart the thieves. So maybe yeah. I should get a folding bike that I can take Take in. into the meeting yeah, with you. Yeah. That's a so. good idea. So now you're back from London and you're here. How long have you, so this was like last year? I just came back, yeah, last year in August. Oh, wow. So yeah. it was just a few months ago. Yeah. Amazing. And you were saying that you had spent some time over the holiday on Instagram, which mm. I think is a good time spent for somebody who has a company like yours, who yeah. is looking to build your audience direct yeah. to consumer. Well, so social media is one of those rabbit holes for me where I consciously work on not being on social because I can't control myself. It's like this horrible dope. I feel <laughs> the same way. Yeah. It's crazy. I literally, as you're saying this, I have banned myself yeah. from social media. Yeah, I, ha I have to. I have it, It's a rabbit hole. I have the best of intentions when I go into Facebook to DM somebody and then half an hour later, I didn't DM the person and I'm looking at some stupid pages. But one of the things I learned from Gary, listening to one of Gary Vaynerchuk's things was he has this rule called the $1.80 rule and you can Google it. It's basically finding nine, you, you can hashtag what area you want to focus on, finding nine people a day and I don't know where the dollar eighty comes from, something about 20 cents in there. And you just spend time to genuinely talk to that person. Right. right. And the goal is to find nine to 10 new people every day to basically build. So what I did was I am really interested in finding genuine influencers. So I just, you know, scrolled through people whose profiles I thought was interesting and genuine. And mm -hmm. I just started having conversations, not really selling the brand, but just, you know, simple stuff like, I love your, what you're posting, scroll back and talk a little bit about some stuff they might have done before. And I was surprised at the responses that I was getting from people who probably, if I had sent them a DM that was around you know, something like, hey, we have protein bars, we'd love for you to try them, probably wouldn't, would not have got a favorable response. Yeah, it. I mean, we work with a couple of athletes, my PR company, and we get those emails all the time. Yep. It just feels like automated. Yep generated spam almost. Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of like you miss the mark if you Absolutely. don't personally connect with people. Yeah. I, I put myself on a timer when I was doing this. It was basically so a I, half an hour timer. It's like so. you're in my head. Like I'm like, I could do this if I had a timer because I'm thinking this is a good idea. I could reach yeah. out to people, have conversations, just give myself a time limit. Yeah. 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 I had to because otherwise I'd be. <laughs> I go down the Instagram rabbit hole. Sure. Yeah. It's bad. And I just feel horrible after the experience. So it's not just that I waste time. It's, you know, maybe it's just I don't have enough self-respect. There's, there's something about I see enough people living amazing lives and I start <laughs> feeling really sorry for myself and all that. So, I'm, okay, I'm going to stop watching other people's Instagram lives. Right. So do you connected with a couple of people that you think are interesting for Amrita sure. to promote and represent yeah. the product. Yeah. And our goal this year is pretty aggressive. So we've had about 20 ambassadors on average in the past. Mm -hmm. This year we're trying to get to a hundred and we really believe it's an important, it's a lens where if we can get people who love our product and then they become basically a cog in the wheel, when then they go and talk to their community about our product genuinely. Right. So it's a very effective marketing strategy if we can execute on it. We're 
probably gaining five to 10 influencers a week, which is That's not great. Bad. And you yeah. send them these amazing products. Yeah. Yeah. We send them a box of products and you don't actually have to spend that much. You know, at the end of the day, if they like what you are as a brand, they'll talk about you. And then we build up some affiliate links with them and we, we just keep it really real. Like we say we're a small company and we can't afford to give them hundreds of dollars of, right. of free product. And, you know, we'll give them some and we'll give them discount and all that. And, and I think most of them are fine with it. I mean, it's one of those things, if you like the product, I mean, yeah. you're going to talk about it. Right. I, that's all I do. So, yeah. I mean, that's how I hear of everything. I know you had at one point, you were working with some triathlon clubs as well, yeah. sort of providing their athletes with bars and products. Are you still looking to bring on more yeah. triathletes and yeah, more sure. of the triathlon clubs yeah, as yeah. well? Yeah, 100%. And so if anybody is listening who's, who's a triathlete, we're building out a, a really interesting program, which basically be like, you know, would give you a kit and in an exchange, you would buy some product. So that basically we're sort of like covering for the kit, but it helps us get the brand out. People love the design of our kit. We've heard that from a lot of people. And I think the more people we get wearing the kit out while training, it's it's all goodness. So, yeah. so that's sort of the program we're sort of putting rolling I feel like out. my phone is already ringing <laughs> with a couple athletes that are going to be asking me to make an introduction. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so this will be, you know, anybody, we can worry anybody. So it's not about top level athletes. And then we're working with a lot of events. Typically what we found is that most organizers will do multiple events. So we're working with somebody in upstate New York who's doing 20, 30 events and he's brought us into three or four events for mm-hmm. this year and then we'll keep working. And they're all triathlon events. So our focus, 100% focus this year is triathlon. And the only other place where we... Preach m- into the choir. Yeah. <laughs> the only other place we might play is yoga. So we're looking at doing more and more work in the yoga community, you know, sponsoring some yogis who would, who would then do, you know, free yoga in the, in the park, that kind of stuff. And yeah. Yeah. So some of that. Like, That's yeah. great. I mean, I think it's really great that you're so connected with your consumers. And I think the only thing I want to mention, and, and this is I'm 51 now, and I started the company when I was 45 ish. And it's a big risk that point in your life when you've have MBA, master's and all sort of do all that, climb the corporate ladder and then descend into being an entrepreneur descend and, you know and, and finally you'll ascend out of it but there's quite a bit of working your your butt off as an entrepreneur i just want to tell a lot of 40 year olds or 30 year olds or 50 year olds that there's no better time to take off if you really hate the job that you're doing and hopefully you have a supportive partner or spouse that being an entrepreneur now is a lot easier than it was 10 years ago 15 years ago the the tools are there. You can do this while you have your other job. You know, I right. always encourage people to not put the candle out. Just work on it while you have your other thing. And who knows? It goes somewhere and then, you know, you can get, oh, even if you have to retire early to do this. Talk to me a little bit about your philosophy on entrepreneurship today and starting a company. So I feel like a lot of people are coming into entrepreneurship because they feel it's a quick way to make money. And maybe they feel like the corporate job is just too long and they got to get degrees and all that. And, and the way I look at this is that entrepreneurship now is giving people an opportunity to really follow their passion that maybe a decade ago they couldn't do because 
the tools weren't there to create a website within a couple of days. And now you've got some of those tools. Now you can put up a Shopify website in a day and you can, right. you know, you can have an idea, you can build a product, you can launch it in Kickstarter. So a lot of those things that were just not available. The realization of an idea is much faster, but I think the work that's needed is intense and it's a lot more than corporate work, you know, or a steady job. In a typical corporate environment, most people, when they check out, they check out. Right. And maybe they'll check, you know, a couple of the emails later at night or not. I cannot remember a single day in my last six years when I checked out at 5 p.m. It's like, right. you know. Right, the, the, I have to say, I have worked nonstop for the yeah. past 10 to 15 days. Yeah. And I literally said to myself later tonight, I am... There is no way, whatever happened today, I am not even dealing, like I'm just moving forward to the next day. I'm taking sure. four hours off, sure. just four hours. Right. But but if you Not add including up, sleep. <laughs> right. But if you add up the hours, yeah. you, you'll see that you're probably working way below minimum wage or like I've done the numbers and it's, it's, it's horrible. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it doesn't feel as much as if you work in a job that you didn't care about right. and, and all that. Right. So I think it's- like you don't even feel like you're working. Um, exactly, exactly. Like, and you're doing interesting things and all that. So that's my whole thing about an entrepreneur is that it is a ton of work and you've got to be be willing to just grit, hustle. You might get lucky and, you know, you might get your break early. But I hear Gary talking about this with people all the time. He's referring to Gary V. Yeah, Gary V. He was Gary always, Vaynerchuk. you know, talking to these young people who He's are gonna like. He's going to call me now. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> And these people are upset because they have not made it to a certain point when they, they hear other people making it to a certain point faster. And Gary's whole thing is, listen, it, it took him 10 years to grovel in his wine business to get to a certain level. Yeah, but people don't see that people struggle. People just don't they see, just see it. I mean, yeah. They just see the end results. They don't see the struggle. Yeah, and so I think that's the main thing that is important for people to understand that you can be a very successful entrepreneur in this country, but you just got to put in the work. Amrita bars really are terrific. Can you talk to me a little bit about your ingredients? There's a couple differences compared to the traditional bars. One is it's it's raw. So right. if you think about a clean nutrition that's from the enzyme perspective is really bioavailable, it is very clean. It checks off a lot of the allergen boxes. So if you've got gluten, dairy, soy, eggs, corn, it's kosher. So people have different requirements and it sort of checks off a lot of those boxes. And I think the third thing is that we work extremely hard to keep the product fresh. So we're making it in small batches. So that way, when you get something, it's probably not more than two to three months old at the max. So versus other bars that have two year shelf lives. So that's something we're very careful of. And then also when you open up other bars, I just got a whole bunch of keto bars because we're looking at the keto market. And so obviously I, I ordered all the keto bars in the market to test it out. And I was shocked at how horrible they were in terms of taste. It was mostly sawdust and the people were paying so much money for those products, right? And my whole concept with food and what I make is it should first taste like real food because it's like something that you'd be, you'd be happy to eat and then it should meet the macros that you care about. But the macros come second, the taste comes first to me. This was awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, I know. This was wonderful. Thanks again for tuning in to Marnie on the Move. If you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts. Follow us on social at Marnie on the Move for Facebook and Instagram and Marnie Salop on Twitter. 
head over to our website, MarnieOnTheMove.com for more info on this episode, links in the show notes, and of course, sign up for our quarterly newsletter, The Download, to get updates, deals, giveaways, and information on future events for 2019. I want to hear from you. Email me, MarnieOnTheMove1 at gmail.com, and let me know what you're enjoying, what you want to hear more of, If you have questions for our guests, just reach out. 